Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Keith. Today we have Serena Chang, who is a PhD student at Stanford in Computer Science, co-advised by Johan Ugander and Yuri Leskovic. Her research is in developing methods to model and make predictions over complex systems of human behavior with applications in epidemic modeling, disinformation dynamics, political polarization, and recommendation systems. Welcome, Serena. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and specifically today, we're going to look at her paper, which was published um, in Nature in 2020, that's about mobility network models of COVID-19, explain inequalities and inform reopening. And so I'm going to attempt a summary of this paper here, and then hopefully Serena will expand and correct me if necessary. Um, but I really enjoyed this paper a lot, and, and my takeaways were that you and your co-authors combined this aggregate epidemiology model of disease spread with mobility networks, with um, real aggregate mobile phone location data. And this data shows how real people move from their homes to points of interest in the community in some major cities in the US. Um, is, is that a correct high level summary of, of what the paper showed? Yeah, that's perfect. I think um, the first thing to know is that we have this aggregated mobility network. And so the key about that network is that it encodes the hourly movements of people from neighborhoods that are technically called census block groups. Um, so their movement from these neighborhoods to points of interest, which are individual non-residential locations like restaurants, cafes, grocery stores, gas stations, et cetera. And so using this mobility network, we can then overlay a model of disease transmission on it to try to capture who was infected, where and when. And so this can allow us to do a bunch of analyses, both retrospective, trying to analyze which were the riskiest points of interest and also which communities were more at risk. And then we can also do these short-term hypothetical forecasts saying, okay, if we modify the mobility a little bit, what do we expect will happen to cases in the next week or two? And this worked because you had data both before and during the pandemic. Is that correct? Like what are the, exactly. the time ranges again of, of the data you're looking at? Yeah, so we were quite lucky. We got to work with near, near real-time data, or at least it was near real-time when we started the project. Um, so we really focused on the first wave of infections from March to May 2020. And like you mentioned, we were looking at 10 of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States including New York, Atlanta, San Francisco, LA, and other places. Um, and so, yeah, so we started this work around March, 2020 as well. So it was really going in step with the pandemic and with data as we, as we went. Um, and so that was quite exciting to be able to use real data from the pandemic, because as you know, mobility patterns really changed around this time. So we felt like it was a lot more reflective of what was happening on the ground as opposed to using historical data from, for example, 2018 or something. Yeah, that's extremely exciting. Um, so that was sort of the setup of the model and my takeaways of, of the big impact conclusions that, that you all had were that 
one, a, a small minority of these points of interest, be they restaurants or, or grocery stores, et cetera, really account for this large majority of infections. Can you talk a little bit more about what that meant and, and how you found that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we have this mobility network and because of it, we can simulate who is getting infected where and when. And to give you an example, so because we know the hourly movements of people, let's say you knew that there were a bunch of people at the same point of interest in the same hour. And if some of those people are susceptible and some of them are currently infectious as predicted by the model, then there's gonna be some probability of new infections occurring. And so we can then use extra metadata that we have about the point of interest to say, how large is that probability of infection? And so that probability is going to scale with, for example, the area of the point of interest. So if it's smaller, then it's riskier. Um, it can scale with the average amount of time that people spend at the point of interest. That's another form of aggregate data that we have from SafeGraph, which is the company that we got our mobility data from. And then of course, it's going to scale with how many infectious people are there and how many susceptible people are there. And so based on both these static and time varying factors, we can say how risky is every point of interest in every hour? And what is the expected number of infections that would happen at every point of interest using this real mobility data? And then so based on these expected numbers of infections, then we can rank all the points of interest by how many expected infections each of them contributed to um, during this first wave. And so what we found was this sort of super spreader finding, which is that just 10% of points of interest account for over 80% of expected infections that occurred at points of interest during this time period. And so that, that really means that risk is heterogeneous. It's not uniformly distributed over points of interest, but rather there are a few that if targeted correctly, perhaps we could make a large reduction in infections um, without shutting down the entire economy. So, so that's one finding that we had that we thought might be quite applicable to policymakers as they're deciding what sort of mobility restriction measures to put forward. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that um, this project started in March, 2020, which means it like started when the pandemic started. So it makes sense that you had this idea at the time, but could you tell us a little bit more about how this idea, where this idea was born, how did it evolve? And also how did you work with um, studying something that was happening at the same time as your paper? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we had been working with the mobility data for uh, several months prior to starting this project. And so Emma Pearson, my co-author, had been leading a separate project that was related to using mobility data to try to understand socioeconomic segregation in the US. And so, you know, a lot of the time we study segregation in terms of who is living where, but what about these sorts of mobility patterns? Do people of different socioeconomic groups actually cross paths throughout the day? And what is the sort of experienced version of segregation? And so she was doing this great project and David Gruski and Beth Redbird, who are the sociologists on our project, were already on board. And so there was already a smaller team there. And then once the pandemic hit and became really a big thing in the US starting in March, 2020, we realized we could repurpose this mobility data that we were already using um, to study COVID. And I, I've started to hint at the reasons for this, but mobility is really quite central in a lot of the ways that the US responded to COVID particularly way before we had any vaccines. 
um, because, you know, central to our response was these non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, early on in March, we saw a lot of stay-at-home orders. So that's really the goal there is to reduce people's mobility so that they can reduce their contact with others so that we can contain the spread of the virus. And so it really does come down to mobility. Or another question around reopening is which places should we reopen first? And the question there is where should we return foot traffic to? And when is it safe enough for people to be mobile again? Um, so a lot of these questions we realized could be studied through the lens of mobility. And then at the same time, we had this great data, this near real-time data that could tell us how mobility patterns were changing during this time. Fantastic. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how this team that started, as you said, as a smaller team grew into the list of co-authors it currently is? Where did those connections form and, and how did you decide? I thought it was pretty incredible that you have sociologists, that you have people from medicine, that you have computer scientists as well. Like it seems like a truly interdisciplinary team here. Yeah, that was really exciting to get to work with so many people, experts from different fields. And I think that's really what made the project what it was. Um, so some of the formation started before I even joined Yuri's lab. So I was rounding out my first year actually when we started this project, um, but Emma and Yuri and David and Beth had already been working on this segregation project before. And if I understand correctly, I think it was because David and Beth had this data and they had some great questions. And so they approached Yuri and Emma, who both have a background in doing these sorts of data science and social science projects. And they were like, are you interested in working with us on this? And so it started out as a very like sort of quantitative sociology project. Um, and then I joined the lab in winter of, of from 2019 to 2020. And around that time, I started doing a sort of spin-off version of the mobility and segregation project. And like I mentioned, then we, then we pivoted to doing COVID work. Um, and at that point, then um, we needed an epidemiologist on board. Like we weren't gonna do epidemiological modeling without someone with that sort of background. And so then we were looking for one and luckily Beth knew Jaylene who's also at Northwestern. So they're both at Northwestern. Um, Jaylene started off by giving us some guidance on the model, but then we got really excited about her guidance and she got excited about our project and she ended up becoming a co-author on the project. And then finally, Peng Wei, um, he's also a CS PhD at Stanford. Um, he's a longtime collaborator of Emma's and they, they go way back. They started, I think they did Stanford undergrad together and everything. And so once this became, you know, this larger thing and it had a machine learning component too, then Emma invited Peng Wei to join us. And so the three of us were the, the PhDs on board. And honestly, I'm so grateful for the two of them. Like it really made it such a great experience because, you know, it was a pandemic. I just joined the lab and now I was living in New York and I wasn't seeing anyone from the lab, but getting to work with them very intensely and having them as my mentors made a big difference. So yeah, so we collaborated on this project and, um, and I think, yeah, having all of those voices on board um, made it work. With so many of you coming from different disciplines, where they're differences in how you were approaching problems or how you were thinking about them? Were there points of not necessarily conflict, but, but, but disagreements that you had? Um, and, and if so, how, how did you come together as sort of this interdisciplinary team to move forward with the project? Yeah, I think we were lucky not to have conflicts per se, but I think like 
of course, when you bring together an interdisciplinary team, people will have different parts that they focus on, that they really care about. And so you could see that in the sort of places where people contributed more. Um, for example, like Jaylene really helped us with the uh, epidemiological modeling. And so, you know, me, Emma and Pangwei were pretty new to this sort of modeling. Yure had more experience because he's been in the networks world for a long time and there's a strong intersection between networks and epi modeling. Um, but it was great to have Jaylene there too. And she would, she would help us with questions like, like, are we allowed to make this assumption here? Is it okay if we don't model asymptomatics, for example, does that ruin the project or is, can we still make these claims about mobility and have a pretty simple epi model to go with it? Um, and are these questions interesting to the epidemiological community um, and all of that. And so I think she was really helpful with the modeling side, how to build the model. And then the computer scientists were interested in the model validation. And so how do we show accuracy and how do we show how accuracy will get worse as you do various ablation studies? If you take away this feature, if you do that. Um, and so we are interested in, for example, how important is mobility towards accurately capturing cases and ac accurately capturing daily deaths. And so there's like a focus there. And then the sociologists were really interested in these sorts of scientific questions. So once you have a fitted model, then what can you say about it? And you'll see one of the big um, themes of our project along with all this reopening stuff, the other theme of our project is around inequities um, and understanding why there are these large disparities in reported cases uh, and reported deaths for COVID. And we know that lower income minority communities have been hit uh, more severely by COVID and then trying to see whether mobility can partially explain why. And so we do find with our model, interestingly, even though we don't give the model demographic information during the simulation, it's still able to accurately predict all of these disparities in both income and race across all 10 cities that we model. And so then, then the sociologists were really interested in digging into that and asking, why does this happen? What is it about the mobility data that can encode these disparities? And also what does this mean for the sorts of policies that we should put forward from here? Speaking of like policy implications, um, how did you and your co-authors navigate those? And did they like, does that place any additional pressures on top of publication? Yeah, I think so. I think especially once the paper came out and we, we were fortunate to get, you know, a lot of media coverage, um, we wanted to make sure that we were saying exactly what we wanted to say. Um, and so, you know, since the paper came out in November, the second, the follow-up project that we've been doing is actually working closely with policymakers to build a dashboard um, of our model that, that they can actually deploy. So we've been working with a team from University of Virginia. They have a long-standing relationship with the Virginia Department of Health. And so we've been building a dashboard for Virginia and for the metropolitan areas within Virginia. Um, and it's very tailored to the sorts of reopening plans that they're considering. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a challenge sometimes when you put out something more general um, to make sure that people only take away the general points if they're trying to apply it to their jurisdiction. Um, and if they're really trying to uh, apply it to their jurisdiction, it requires a lot more work where we can actually collaborate and build something for them. To give you some examples, like the original paper, it was modeling the first wave. Right, so that already creates a discrepancy between our findings and what can be immediately applied to policy because it came out in November. 
And then also, of course, we only modeled 10 of the metropolitan areas in the US. So there are a lot of groups that wanted to know whether it could apply to their city or their rural area that wasn't covered by our study. Um, so I think there are a lot of caveats that came with the sort of policies that we could suggest. And so we really tried to stay in this sort of broad high level zone when we gave any sort of policy implications in our nature paper. Like we would say, you know, broadly, um, it seems like mobility contributes to disparities or broadly, it seems like these categories of places like restaurants, um, gyms, and then hotels or something. Broadly, it's like this ranking of how dangerous it is to reopen, but we weren't trying to say it's exactly this number or it's exactly that number. And so, yeah, I think you need to be, um, to always, you know, sort of qualify your work with those things. It sounds like it was very clear early on that mobility was going to be central to the research questions you were asking because you had this very rich mobility data set. But I'm curious if you can talk about how research questions evolved and changed over time. Were there some questions, especially coming from the, the sociology co-authors that they in initially asked that maybe your model couldn't tackle or that you had to adapt? And what did it look like for the evolution of these ideas? Yeah, yeah. So if, um, thinking back to the beginning of the project, I think one clear distinction is originally when we started, we were really doing more descriptive statistics and a little bit of causal inference. So it was more about making visualizations, showing how mobility had dropped. Um, this was in March and thinking about how stay at home orders were maybe impacting mobility. And so it was a lot more on the descriptive side. And then I think the breakthrough was when we realized that we could model this as a network. And so instead of just looking at the counts for each point of interest, thinking about this network between neighborhoods and points of interest. So just, it's not just how many visits are we getting, but where are those visits coming from? And so once you model it as a network, then that really opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of the sorts of models and algorithms that you can use. So that then naturally translated into a disease transmission model because now we have people in the mix. So then for every neighborhood in our model, we keep track of how many people are currently susceptible or exposed or infectious or removed, which means they just can't be infected or infectious anymore. And so we keep track of how many people are in each disease state at a certain time. And then like I was mentioning earlier, then you can model the transitions between disease states based on the mobility network. And so I think, yeah, that's one of the big ways that the, the project kind of changed from the beginning to maybe um, a, a month in when we realized that this modeling perspective might be um, really the, a very interesting one. And so where did that, that spark of an idea come from and who did it come from or did it emerge slightly naturally? Yeah, I think, so I had just taken Yure's uh, machine learning on graphs class um, in fall. So just, just a few months, maybe, yeah, just a few months before. And so I was trying to get into this sort of networks world as a computational social scientist, I've always been really fascinated by networks. So like Lucy was saying in my bio, I'm really interested in modeling complex systems of human behavior and complex systems and networks often go hand in hand because networks are a really nice way of representing complex systems and the relationships between the entities within those systems. And so I was always looking for a network that maybe we could bring into the project and we realized that SafeGraph was not only providing 
these points of interest and their visit counts, but also an aggregated form of where the visitors were coming from. And then SafeGraph also started providing more information about census block groups because they realized that people were really interested in that. So they started providing for every day, I think, how many people from each census block group were staying at home all day. So there's this um, social distancing metric as they called it. And so then when Pangwei joined the project, then we realized that we could infer actually an hourly network using these two pieces of information, using this algorithm called iterative proportional fitting. Um, so I think the idea for the model initially came from me because I was thinking about networks a lot and modeling disease spread over networks, um, but it really got refined through conversations with Emma and Pangwei and Yure. It's really like, it's really cool that you pulled in so many different people from like different areas, but we all come from like different publishing traditions or different venues. So I'm curious, how did you land upon nature as your publication venue? Um, and then what was like the review process like for that? Like, did you undergo revise and resubmit, um, et cetera? Yeah. 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 I think we knew that we wanted to do nature because it felt like a scientific paper um, as opposed to we had some interesting technical findings, for example, like it's, it's surprising how well mobility does because otherwise our model is really quite simple. It only has three free parameters, they're fixed over time. But with this complex mobility network, then we're able to capture cases, all sorts of case curves um, across these 10 cities. So there was a technical finding there, but it felt like the most interesting findings were the scientific ones like the fact that the stuff about disparities or the stuff about super spreaders, we're thinking about reopening. And so I think that's how we decided that we didn't want to send it to, for example, a computer science conference, but really focus it on a general scientific audience. And then nature in particular, or science or PNAS, all that entire family of journals, they're very general. And so because we were incorporating so many different fields, it felt right to go for a general audience as well and particularly with our topic with COVID, the general public even is interested in it. And so I think being able to reach more and more people um, was, was really great. And so I think that's how we ended up deciding on nature. Just to follow up, what, what was the revise and resubmit or the, the reviewer feedback that you got and how did that change what you were doing? Yeah, so it was intense. <laughs> um, I, it was my first time submitting to a journal too. And it's just very different from the conference process. Um, so we submitted, I think maybe like mid June or something um, for our first time. And we went through three rounds of revise and resubmit, I think before we were officially accepted. Um, and uh, so we, we submitted it. And I think the first time we got nearly a hundred comments back. Um, we had three reviewers. I think most of them were from epidemiology. One of them was actually Dr. Mark Lipsitch, which we found out later on. Um, and uh, yeah, they had a bunch of comments and a lot of them were around model validation um, because they're all epidemiologists. So they're very interested in knowing, you know, how did you make these model decisions? How sensitive are your results to various other choices? So for example, what if you modeled the transmission rate slightly differently? Like if you took out the area or if you took out the dwell time, which is on average how, people, how long people spend at the point of interest. Um, and so there are a lot of questions there. It was less about 
you know, I think people, we already had these initial results about reopening disparities. And I think we all agree that these are interesting results, but it's about establishing confidence in the model that generated these results. And so that's really what our first and maybe second round two of revise and resubmit were about. We ran a lot more sensitivity analysis experiments, basically changing the model and then rerunning all of our results um, and, and doing this for a bunch of different perturbations to the model um, until we could be confident that our high level results weren't dependent on these minor decisions about how we did modeling. And was that process surprising as someone who's coming out of a computer science tradition? And if so, like, how do, how do you embrace, it sounds like, the, uh, the different disciplinary lens of epidemiologists, for example? Yeah, I think it was cool. I think um, it was really nice to have this sort of like thorough process of like iteratively working on it and making it better. I feel like with conferences, sometimes it's, it's just one round, essentially. You submit, you get some comments back, and maybe you'll do one round of revising. But even then, you're sort of limited in how much you can revise. Um, and, and so here, it was really nice to have this iterative process, especially with experts in the field um, who could give us these comments. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it makes me much more critical in the sorts of decisions that I make in my computer science projects now like um, thinking about why I'm choosing to model a certain thing a certain way, or even what is my objective and am I setting the right objective function? I think it, yeah, it really questions the sort of problem setup that sometimes we don't necessarily question that much as computer scientists. And we focus more on um, the methods and trying to get accuracy as high as possible or trying to get performance as good as possible, but maybe not taking a step back and asking, am I asking the right question? Am I modeling this the right way? is my objective correct? Um, so it was cool to see that sort of scientific critical thinking. Yeah, that review process definitely sounds like um, pretty challenging. And I'm curious, were there other like major pitfalls or challenges while working on this paper? And if so, how did you overcome those? Yeah, I think the review process was hard. Um, I guess there are other like various um, challenges along the way, like, um, I mean, there's like the, the technical challenge of just how do you wrangle all of this data? Like we had to come up with data, uh, with coding infrastructures that wouldn't freeze up because too much memory was being used. So to give you a sense of scale, um, the networks that we were working with had billions of hourly edges to them because we're modeling every hourly edge between each census block group and each point of interest. And we chose 10 of the largest metropolitan areas in the US. Um, so we had to come up with computational infrastructures that were both efficient memory-wise and in terms of compute time. Um, so that was definitely a challenge. Um, another challenge was, I think, uh, just figuring out the epi, the epi modeling parts. Um, like I mentioned, like we were quite new to it. Um, so sometimes we weren't sure if we were like doing something totally crazy. Like I remember the first time that we met with Jaylene, I was, the only thing going through my mind was like, I just wanted her to not think we were crazy. Like I wanted it to be a reasonable model. And so she really sanity checked us. And she was like, yeah, like this seems reasonable. I have some changes here and there, but it wasn't like the entire concept was wrong. Um, and so I think uh, it, was, it was hard in that sense of entering 
interdisciplinary zones that I hadn't been in as much before because I consider myself more of a computational social scientist, but I've never done computational epidemiology before. Um, I would say those were some challenges for me. And then there was, of course, the very real challenge of doing work during the pandemic, just, you know, like uh, the things that we've all probably been going through of keeping up work-life balance, but also having a very exciting project going on and a lot of time crunch too, because, you know, there, there could be very, there could be relevant findings from it that could impact the very next policy that policymakers put out. So again, I'm very grateful to both Emma and Pangwei who like got me through this time. We had a very lively Slack channel going on. I actually like had only met Pangwei once in person before. So our entire friendship was established on Slack. And we just, you know, processed a lot of social events that were happening around that time. You know, summer was a very busy time in terms of happenings in the world. Um, we listened to a lot of Taylor Swift together and it just, it really got us through the time. That's great. Um, after publication, it looks like your team built a website, um, has this, uh, you know, interactive article from the New York Times, got a lot of uh, press and publication. And so could you talk a little bit about what was that process post-publication? Um, and how did you navigate what you, what you wanted the project to uh, be shown as versus how people wanted, wanted to present it as? Um, yeah, yeah, that was certainly a challenge too. I think I didn't know the reaction that we would get from the public. Like I thought maybe we'd get a couple articles here and there, but it definitely blew up the week that it came out. Um, my advisor and I were both on TV a couple of times. We were doing interviews nonstop for a week. Um, we ended up getting I think, coverage from over 100, uh, 300 news outlets. And so, yeah, it was very intense, um, but yeah, I think one of the challenges about scientific communication um, is that when you're writing a paper, you can be extremely precise in what you're measuring and you can have a limitation section and you can tell everybody exactly how you measured the thing and what your claims are and what your claims aren't. Um, but when that gets translated into headlines, we notice some of the headlines were not what, not what we were saying in the paper. And so there was a lot of stuff like, Stanford team predicts that restaurants are the riskiest to visit um, or something like that. And, and I think there's a lot of caveats with that kind of headline. Um, the specific experiment that we ran was we said, what would happen if you reopened all restaurants in the city, returned them back to full mobility levels from pre-pandemic and tried that for four, day, four weeks, what would happen? And we tried that with restaurants cafes, grocery stores, gas stations, a bunch of categories. And we found that restaurants came out on top. It would be the largest increase in infections if you fully reopened the category, um, no mask wearing, no social distancing, returned it back to pre-pandemic levels. And the reason for that is, first of all, just the sheer number of restaurants. That's because that category is very large. And so there's going to be an increase in infections because it's such a large category. And an, another reason, of course, is that restaurants themselves tend to be riskier because you spend a longer time period there and the area, uh, the number of people per square feet might be higher than, for example, at a, as a, at a gas station or something. And so there's a mixture of effects, but then people read this and they were like, oh, I should not visit restaurants anymore. And there's a sort of gap 
Um, first of all, because like a lot of our finding came from the number of restaurants. So it's not about individual restaurants. And then the second gap being, we were saying something about um, if you reopen the pre-pandemic levels, not if you went to a restaurant as it is right now with all the mask wearing, with all the new guidelines in terms of tables six feet apart and like sometimes they have the shields up and all of that. Um, and then third, because we were giving an average effect, not an individual. There's a lot of heterogeneity across POIs within a category. There are very risky restaurants and there are very safe restaurants. And so I think um, there is a way in which that experiment was then taken as a headline um, that people, some people got quite upset about, understandably. Um, and so I think we, if I could do it again, maybe we would have been, I don't really know, like maybe we could have been more careful during the nature press briefing, but I'm not even sure that would have helped it that much. I mean, I think it's just that kind of finding that will spread. Um, and yeah, so, so that was a little bit challenging. Um, I think the way that people took that finding, but then some of the other findings I think were reported quite accurately. So for example, the disparities findings, um, talking about how lower income people seem to be at higher risk from their mobility patterns first of all, because they weren't able to reduce their mobility as much. And then secondly, because of the places that they go to. So even if you control for the category, for example, the average grocery store that a lower income person visits tends to be smaller and more crowded and people tend to spend longer time periods there. Um, and this was something that we directly pulled from the mobility data. And I think the New York Times article that you mentioned, for example, did a really good job of visualizing that and showing these disparities that arise from mobility. Um, so I think, yeah, it was a lesson in what sorts of findings might be easier to communicate and what others we need to be more careful about what we say. Um, and, and once it's out there, I think being really careful in the interviews too of emphasizing our points and at least not getting quoted uh, saying the wrong thing. Right. I, I mean, I think you bring up a really interesting aspect of doing social science research or computational social science research is that the people that you are studying can also respond to your studies and totally. change and adapt your behavior, right? So yeah. that that becomes a part of, of what you're trying to model and um, it becomes this very like meta-level meta -level process. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I, you mentioned earlier there were some big takeaways from this project, like thinking about objectives mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But what are some other things that you learned from this project that you hope to kind of carry for your future papers and future projects? Hmm. Good question. What did I learn? I think I learned, I learned a lot. Um, I think I learned a lot about framing what makes a project interesting, how to choose something with high impact, Yuri is amazing at choosing high impact projects. He just has an eye and an instinct for them. Um, and so being able to motivate our work well, understanding why it could have an impact on people and asking interesting questions. Um, for example, like grounding things in, in things that people need. And so starting off with this question here of, we want to be able to answer questions about reopening. We want to be able to answer questions about disparities. And then how can we do that? Um, and so starting off with the needs. And so instead of you know, having a hammer and trying to find the nail, 
starting off with what are the needs and then how can we support those needs. Um, I think another thing that I've learned is how difficult it is to translate from science and research to real world practice. Um, because we're, we're working now on translating our model into something that policymakers can directly use. Um, and at that point you have to, um, there, there are small things like how do you translate um, so, so for example, yeah, I can tell you a little bit more about the dashboard that we've built. So right now we have a dashboard and we're thinking about what would happen if you changed current mobility levels um, to some percentage of pre-pandemic levels based on 2019 mobility. And we're doing that for Virginia. And one of the challenges there is we're very interested in what current mobility levels actually are. Um, and so the counterfactual actually gets a little bit weird because it's like, if I fully reopened restaurants, for example, would current mobility actually go back to 2019 levels or would it stay at something less than that? Because people's behavior um, is not just impacted by policies, but impacted by their own thoughts and, and other factors. And so I think there's a challenge there in terms of the difference between policy and how people react. Um, and so when you talk about uh, current mobility levels, you have to think about uh, the sort of differences across um, groups and across different um, points of interest and think about um, not just like what the policy is, but how people are actually behaving at the moment, which could be as a result of you know, maybe fear of going to a restaurant, even if it's open, or, um, or maybe if something's closed, not complying and still going anyway. And so I think that's one of the challenges about um, translating from the modeling world to the real world. Because in our modeling exercise, we could say, if you close this POI, if you close this point of interest, we're just gonna assume that it's actually closed. We're just going to assume that it's zero mobility now. Um, but in the real world, if you really close, a, a point of interest, people might keep going or they, there might be sort of spillover effects. They might start going to nearby restaurants or they might start going to restaurants in a different state where things aren't closed. And so I think, yeah, there are definitely a lot of challenges of applying a modeling exercise to the real world because people react in all of these unexpected ways. Right, and central to computational social science is, is trying to figure out which assumptions you actually are necessary to, to build into your model. Mm. So can, yeah. you, can you talk a yeah. little bit about, you know, what I, what I loved about um, your paper was that you, you did have a small number of free parameters, only three, right? And mm -hmm. it seems like your, your assumptions were pretty straightforward, but it, there are probably many assumptions like the ones you just talked about that you did not include in the model. So as a team, how did you navigate mm. how complex do we make our model? What's essential, what isn't? How do you decide these types of things? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think at the end of the day, we could have made the model a lot more complex. So like I mentioned earlier, we didn't include asymptomatic, like some, some compartmental models they will split uh, between like the symptomatic and the asymptomatic track in terms of which stage of the disease that you're in and they'll sort of branch off and you could go into two separate branches depending on whether you're symptomatic or not. Um, we decided to keep it simple. So it just goes susceptible, 
exposed, which means that you've contracted the virus, but you're not infectious yet, infectious, and then removed. And we just had four compartments. Um, so that was one choice that we made to keep things simple. We also don't, for example, model um, like differences within census block groups. So I guess we could have gotten fancy and looked up um, maybe like the age, di age distribution of each census block group and then broken them down into sub census block groups where you have like the older group, the younger group, middle age group, and then had like infectious parameters dependent on your age and susceptibility dependent on your age. Maybe somebody will do that in future work. Um, but because we were doing a sort of first project on it, we really wanted to focus on the mobility part. And so the argument really came down to look at how simple our epi model is and look at how complex our network is. If you put together these two things, you can one, first of all, get accurate fits of daily cases in all these 10 cities and two, do some really interesting analyses in terms of both the most at-risk uh, communities and also the riskiest places. Um, so at the end of the day, we decided to center our argument and our contribution on that um, instead of going down the sort of rabbit hole of all these changes we could have made to the model. Another reason that might be interesting to you guys is I think one of the reasons that we did that was because um, the core PhD team, we were three computer scientists, data scientists, led by Yuri, who's an expert in networks. So we wanted to stay in our zone slightly. I think our contribution was on the data side, was on the network side, and less on coming up with the most accurate epidemiological model, because that's not where we were experts. And so I think our comparative advantage, but also the best way for us to contribute was through the big data. Um, and so I think that also guided our decisions in terms of what to um, simplify here and there and what to complicate in somewhere, uh, some other place. Mm, that totally makes sense. Uh, connecting to what you're just saying about data being this comparative advantage, you're dealing with social data in which um, real people are, are giving their mobile location data, sometimes voluntarily, mm -hmm. sometimes without their knowledge, uh, presumably. How did you navigate the privacy and ethical concerns of using data that's inherently coming from real people? Yeah, yeah, so we thought about this a lot. Um, I think one of the key things that we do is we only use aggregated data. Um, SafeGraph technically does have the individual devices and, and they have that individual data out there, but we only use data that was aggregated over hundreds, if not thousands of people per census block group. And so it, I, I think it would be impossible using our, even though they're hourly networks, to trace one individual's um, movements because it's not only aggregated, but from one hour to another, let's say you had a census block group and it had maybe just one visit to some restaurant and then it had one visit in the next hour to a gym. You don't know whether that's the same person. You just know that they came from the same census block group. And we wouldn't even have that in the first place because SafeGraph doesn't provide information uh, about the network when the numbers are that low. And so I think they only provide it at like five or 10 visits or more. They have some sort of threshold there too. Um, so I think aggregating the data is still is very important and that helps with the sort of individual concerns. And then the other side is in terms of what can you actually say about points of interest. And so we never report on individual points of interest. 
even though our model is modeling individual points of interest, you'll see in our nature findings, we always aggregate our results over multiple census block groups and multiple points of interest. So we talk about the entire category of restaurants, which has often tens of thousands of points of interest in it. Um, or we'll talk about the entire decile of the lowest income census block groups, which usually has around hundreds of census block groups in it. And so I think saying these sorts of average effects instead of singling out one place is, is very important. Um, so I think that's one way that we thought about it. And then once we decided to share our mobility networks because they're already available through SafeGraph, we just thought it'd be easier if we shared our networks for transparency and so people could replicate, we have a separate data form that we ask people to fill out to before they can actually use our data. And so we tried to go through all of these steps um, and hopefully uh, I think there's a limit to what you can do with these networks. And then furthermore, hopefully people won't abuse them in the, um, yeah, in whatever ways that they could. One of the challenges I found with research is trying to figure out when is a project done enough that you're ready for publication or ready to present it to the world. So mm -hmm. can you illuminate how your team thought about the process of there's, there's clearly this time aspect to the COVID work that yeah. you're doing. Um, when is it good enough? And, and when do you decide to submit for publication, for example? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. When do you know? I think, yeah, that is, I mean, it is very challenging with research because you could always do more. You always have another question that you could ask or you could you could dig a little deeper on, on something that you found. Um, I think in our case, we felt partially because we knew that there would be a long review process. Um, so when we submitted it for review the first time, it wasn't like we, we were like, oh, this has to be perfect. Like this has to be the final version of it. Um, we expected to get a lot of comments back. And so I think we submitted when we felt like there was a story that could be trusted. Um, and so we had interesting scientific findings at that point, and we had some model validation. We had shown at least that the version of the model that we developed could fit, fit cases accurately. And then, like I mentioned after that, then we did a bunch of extra model validation on other versions of the model to show that the results didn't change. But I think the story was there um, by the time that we submitted it the first time. Um, I'm not sure I can answer that any better. I mean, I'm also pretty early in my PhD. So I think my answer on that will improve. But on this project, that's what happened at least. Mm -hmm. And like, if you did have like another page or another month for this paper, is there something that you would have wanted to include or was there something that you had taken out? Um, the nice thing about, oh, another nice thing about journals is that you can have very long appendices. And so unlike a conference paper where you're often trying to fit it into, you know, nine pages or something, and sometimes they even have limits on how long your appendices can be. Um, in this case, I think we were allowed to say everything we wanted to say, but there was definitely some cutting that happened about like what could make it into the main paper versus what got put into supplemental. And that was quite interesting too, because this was, a, this was for a scientific audience and not for a computer science audience. So when we write computer science articles, we, we tend to put a lot more of the methods in the main section. Often the methods are the contribution themselves. 
Um, but in this case, we actually relegated almost all of the methods to the supplemental information section. Um, and in the main paper, we gave maybe like two or three paragraphs about how the model worked and what data we were using. And then the rest of it was just findings, findings about reopening, findings about disparities and so on. And then there's like a long method section. Um, and then there's an extra, there's a, another supplementary information section. And so, yeah, figuring out what went where, if we had an extra page, we probably would have had an extra page in the main section, we probably would have put more about the methods in there. Um, and if I had an extra month to work on it, I mean, I think that's basically the work that we're doing now um, of trying to translate this academic project into a real world thing. Um, so I'm glad for that thing, like that aspect of research, which is that you can keep working on it. Um, and so almost immediately after the paper came out, we, we shifted gears into this sort of deployed zone. And so, yeah, we started working with these collaborators at University of Virginia who were working with the Virginia Department of Health. And we started training models specifically for Virginia. We translated all of our findings from this first wave period to the most recent period. We started incorporating mask wearing into our model, which we didn't actually have in the first version. Um, and nowadays we're working on incorporating vaccination effects, which is quite exciting. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting to do research on something that is happening at the same time as your research. You're always um, trying to adapt to the current state of the world. Great, well, thank you so much, Serena, for um, chatting about your work and, and good luck with this very important, impactful work you're doing in the future here too. Yeah, thanks for having me.